The best data is is real data that is generated either by humans, sometimes that's emails or you know whatever that use case is that you're solving. So I'll take a frequent use case, which is often like a prioritization of support tickets, right? It's a classic model that teams want to build inside a lot of different types of organizations. You have zillions of support cases coming in for, and you want to just categorize them, or you want to understand you know which ones are most severe that need to be answered first. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a customer-driven product leader who is dedicated to building products that solve hard problems for real people. Having made positive impacts for customers at both startups and enterprises alike, she's built a proven track record of bringing products to market and scaling them from concept to large-scale ROI. She's held a wide range of high-profile roles at many machine learning organizations, including VP of Product for Figure 8, which was acquired by Appen, VP of AI and Data at Appen, and Director of Product at IBM Watson. Currently, she's pursuing her dream of using technology to improve healthcare and serves as the director of product at Blue Shield of California, where she's surrounded by tons of data, hard problems, and countless opportunities to make positive impact in the lives of millions. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a woman who is thrilled to pursue the mission of providing access to high quality, affordable healthcare to all, Alyssa Simpson Rockberger. Alyssa, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Today, we are going to discuss your book, Real World AI. I really, really enjoyed this book as is evidenced by all the flags and tags I've gotten there. Yeah, there's like notes and everything all up in here. So I'm excited to get into the book. But before we do that, let's talk, talk about, talk a little bit about you and your background. So Early on in the book, you mentioned being an unlikely AI leader. So talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. Um, So I have a a fairly non-traditional background for data science or or machine learning, um, but one that I actually think gives me a lot of strengths and opportunities. Um, I have a liberal arts degree in American studies and photography. I went to progressive education. I don't have an MBA. I don't have a computer science background. Um, I have done quite a few courses and spent well over a decade in hands-on experience working with development teams, working with data science teams and machine learning teams and deep R&D research. But, and so that's what's given me a bit of a different background. You know, I bring a lens of customer experience and an interdisciplinary background to the space. And it's been a, an incredible privilege to work with partners who 
help me in the technical areas where um, I'm not as strong and help me understand how we can apply the technology towards really hard, hard problems that people care about and what that means when the technology gets out of the lab, you know, and actually is impacting someone's life. We are definitely going to get into the importance of having cross-functional kind of interdisciplinary teams when it comes to building AI products uh, very shortly here. Uh, but something you, you mentioned was what happens when these products get out in the real world. So what could possibly, what could possibly go wrong if all we did was focus on creating accurate machine learning systems and just focus on that accuracy metric? Yeah. Um, so that was the classic First mistake I made when I got into machine learning. So when I first joined the Watson team in the computer vision space, I was like the first product manager that the team had had. Um, and I was just going to speed. I was paired with some incredibly talented PhDs who had been in this space for a really, really long time. And they launched a beta product. And the feedback from customers were, it's not accurate. It needs to be more accurate. It needs to be better. And I played around with the API, I would be feeding it images and getting tags back. And I totally agreed. It was like, yep, needs to be more accurate. I had a, uh, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, and so I was asking the team, okay, you guys are working on making it more accurate. Like, how are we measuring that? You know, what do you mean by accuracy? And so then I learned what an F1 score was. I'm sure this audience is probably well steeped in different sort of academic uh, measures of accuracy, understanding what the difference was with, between precision and, and recall and all that. But it actually came down to what data set were you measuring this on? And we had a data set with millions, millions of images. And, uh, you know, at the time um, we were using ImageNet as one of those data sets and we made the system a lot more accurate. Our F1 score got better, our precision got better, our recall got better. And, and then we went to launch this newfangled, more accurate system that was actually beating you know, a lot of records. And a few days or weeks, I can't remember before it launched, it was a halt the presses. Oh my God, no, we can't launch this situation. And I was like, what are you talking about? There's all these people and like money and time's got into this, like we're launching. And the researcher was like, no, we're not. And he sent me the image of what he had put into the API. And it was an image of someone in a wheelchair. And the tag that came back was loser. And I was like, oh, you're right. We're not launching this. This is a horrible, horrible, in my opinion, very inaccurate answer. However, it was a more accurate system by those traditional measures. And what we had not done was really dive into what data were we measuring accuracy on. And what we ended up finding was, you know, that quite a few other things that we pulled out in terms of the data set that were bad training data and were teaching things that were incorrect. And so we had over-focused on the sort of F1 scores and not on what was the actual training data itself or gold standard benchmarking that was driving those numbers. And, and what would that mean to our customers, right? If they were using this and they, you know, put in images and got back tags, you know, just because that was accurate according to the data set, that was going to be a huge black eye for IBM and a bad New York Times story. And I wanted no piece of that. And so, you know, we, we changed courses. I mean, that speaks to the the subtitle of the book here, A Practical Guide for Responsible Machine Learning. Excellent book, by the way. You guys should pick this up. I highly recommend this. And there's a few different points that, that we got to dig into in there. I mean, the, the importance of a baseline, the importance of making sure we have the right data, but 
and and you lay out such a nice clear framework on how to how to do this responsibly in the book but the first thing i guess we got to need to figure out is okay how do we identify a problem that ai should solve right so can you share some strategies with us for identifying the types of problems that ai should solve absolutely um you know one of the things i i quickly learned was that i was not alone and many other practitioners in the space had very similar stories to the one that i had not everyone likes talk about or share those stories. Um, we share quite a few of them in the book, but hard to get people to talk about failure. And uh, to your question around the, the problem, you know, often what happens is that it's the mistake I made, which is that I didn't define the problem well. I took for granted the project as it was handed, handed to me. And um, I sort of assumed that the team was on the right track when I stepped in and, and was getting up to speed. And I didn't take a step back to say, what business problem are we actually solving with an improved accuracy? So in my case, the customers, our, our customers were people who were trying to use visual recognition for marketing or, you know, customer service or all sorts of different things. And when I peeled back what they meant by make it more accurate, what they really meant was I have a very, very narrow and specific thing that I'm looking to tease out of imagery. Can you help me define? put something yes or no into that category. So one example could be, you know, if you're Ben and Jerry's and you are launching a new brand of ice cream, you want to know where in social media your Ben and Jerry's logo or that new brand is or isn't. If the tag comes back as ice cream, right, or birthday party, and yes, but you know, there's it, that's inaccurate. It is an accurate description, but it's too vague or broad for the use case that they need. And so we totally shifted course um, and solved a different problem, which was building a system that could be trained or customized for really narrow use cases. But that took shifting gears um, and really getting out of the technical focus at all and spending time with customers saying, why do you even want this in the first place? Um, and sometimes those customers are internal um, business stakeholders, those could be a customer support team, or it could be a marketing team, or you know, many different use cases. And sometimes those are external company customers to you. Like, go talk to them, get out of the building, you know, set up virtual Zoom meetings and ask them why is it that they're using your product and what really matters. Um, and sometimes what you'll find is actually they don't need machine learning at all. Um, and you know, it's not actually a good toolkit for the problem that they're trying to solve. And they have a vague understanding of the sort of magic AI that's going to be applied. And so once you understand the problem, then you can decide whether or not machine learning actually is appropriate. Um, and as data scientists, right, you know that it's important to have a robust training data set that matches the problem that is important to the customer. So in order for Ben and Jerry's to pick out their ice cream, you know, in birthday party pictures and social media, they need a lot of images trained around what their logo looks like and being able to articulate that. And if that doesn't, if, it, if that data isn't there, it doesn't exist, you know, that's your first gotcha. Another one is around the business value of solving this problem, right? So how much is Ben and Jerry's willing to pay to find their logo, right? What is it worth to them? Because that, you know, machine learning is hard and expensive and requires specialized talent. And so if you don't have a big enough business value that is very, very difficult to achieve with traditional methods that are not using machine learning, that's also a gotcha because it means that you don't have any money to actually solve this problem or you don't have the urgency to do it. So that sort of relative business value and priority and funding um, and data are kind of the key thing. 
so you talk about this in in the book as well this this notion of the the goldilocks problem so it, would that be kind of that definition of the goldilocks problem in, in a nutshell like how, how do we how do we tell if you know if we're if we have like you know what was that the the the, yeah. the papa bear like right in the middle of just yeah right? the, the goldilocks problem um is framed a little bit differently it's when a company decides hey i want to do machine learning right i have a lot of different things that i think it could be applied to which one should I start with? And that's an opportunity of taking a lot of different problems and sort of categorizing and measuring them around, okay, which ones are really important to your business? Which ones do you have all the data for? You know, which ones are small enough from a technical model building perspective that you can effectively build a model fairly quickly and get it into production? accurate enough and launch? Where is there not a ton of risk to your organization of getting it wrong, right? You have to kind of evaluate all these different problems against those criteria so that you can be successful in a pilot when you have uh, an organization that is interested in adopting AI, which basically everyone is, but is stumbling to actually sort of make any of those projects particularly fruitful. And I guess... The, the hard question is like, you know, as data scientists and machine learning practitioners, we, we got, we got a toolkit, right? If we got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So can you share some tips with us to understand or tell at least if a problem is going to be well suited to using machine learning? Yes. The, the difference I find, and this actually came out in one of the interviews I was doing for the book and someone else sort of Frame this really well for me. The difference between a more junior data scientist and a more senior data scientist is that the junior data scientist will take something vague from a business stakeholder or, or they've gotten assigned to a project and they will just start solving it from a uh, using their toolkit that they learned in school and trying to build models and using whatever data that's available to them on day one. The more senior data scientists will not at all start solving the problem um, and have a lot of conversations with the business around, okay, what problem are you really solving? You know, what value is it? You know, what data do you have? Let me look at the data and spend time thinking if that's actually really the right data and evaluating it to see how well it matches the expectations of the business folks. Those sort of starting point differences to me are are huge. Um, and they, they they really represent the difference between someone less experienced and more experienced because the more experienced person knows that the actual model building piece is not, I don't want to say trivial or easy, but it, that is not the hard part. I mean, I can't build models, so I have a lot of humility for it, but you know, that, that part is executional in nature and the far more difficult piece is really around understanding is your data set going to be able to build a model that solves a business problem. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. So we got, we got a good sense here of kind of some strategies for identifying problems, getting into the Goldilocks problem, and then trying to tell if our problem at hand is, is suitable for machine learning. So now I guess the next step would be let's, let's, you know, assemble a team and let's get people working on this project. So how do we determine, how can an organization determine who gets to work or who should rather go to work on this project? I believe in cross-functional teams are what matters and get things done, machine learning problem or not. And so that cross-functional team should represent the business problem. So sometimes that means people from customer success. Sometimes that means you know, people from operations. Sometimes that means finance people or HR people or privacy or legal. That 
in a machine learning context, that often means, you know, machine learning engineers, front-end software engineers, back-end software engineers, data operations, DevOps, right, QA, user experience, you know, design, those are really critical stakeholders. And, And yes, machine learning engineer or data scientist, but... I feel bad for so many uh, machine learning engineers or data scientists are often sort of put on an island by themselves and expected to like do everyone else's job, right? And magically come up with, you know, the answers or solution. And, and that's just not possible. They're not, they're not well equipped to do it. You need a team to solve problems. Um, and so not only should the team be diverse from a skill set perspective, but I highly recommend the team be diverse from a background perspective, or at least that background matches the constituencies of the problem you are solving for the business. So, you know, I'll take a, take an example. You know, there was a, an algorithm built for Compass. Uh, it got a ton of play in the press, which was for recidivism in the U.S. justice system. You know, it was a model that essentially predicted, you know, who was going to commit another crime when someone got out of jail, and who should go back to jail, essentially, um, what their parole should be. And that you know, unsurprisingly, because the justice system in this country is very biased um, and has a lot of data from African-American people or people of color who spend more time in jail because we have all these systemic issues. If you go and train a model on that, guess what? It's going to predict that someone who is Black is, you know, likely to commit a crime more because the data that you're using is flawed, right? And so it's important that the team that is building this reflect the constituency of the people that you're serving because often they will bring experiences that are really 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 relevant that other people have blind spots for right i i am fortunate enough not to be in a wheelchair i had a blind spot there i didn't test that i didn't think to test that system that i had built in visual recognition with anyone in a wheelchair the pictures i tested with were me and my sister at a wedding or, you know, whatever I had lying around that was easy to me. So those were were serious biases that I brought to the table. And I was really fortunate to be part of a, a diverse team who, you know, had was representative of people from all over the world who spoke, I think we had spoke 10 languages on the team, you know, really diverse. And, you know, that's such a huge asset. And over and over and over again in my career building machine learning teams, have I noticed that I'm the only woman in the room, right? or everyone in the room is white, or everyone in the room is white in India. You know, there's there's narrow groups of people building us, and it's not necessarily reflective of the people we're serving, whether or not those people are educated differently, or speak a different language, or come from a different country. Like, you really got to think that through. Yeah, yeah. The incident with Compass is it's quite quite unfortunate. I mean, I mean to, to to quote Kanye West, it seems like Jerome gets more time than Brandon, and just including like a name as a feature to to have something discriminate like that, it, it's possible. And you know, we need to be responsible to not to not let that happen. It, it's um, like so not okay, and yeah. it's also so I want to say easy to fix, but it's so very, very, very possible. You know, there's so many different strategies that you cannot do that. And and you can create responsible locations of machine learning that really do serve and even correct for some of the systemic biases that we, that we have. Yeah. It's like, you know, that's when focusing only on accuracy can go wrong. Right. I mean, that's edge case there, but, um, but yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. And as somebody who is the first data scientist in an organization, building the data science team up from scratch, I can definitely feel the pain of having uh, the expectation that I can do it all. 
But I found it interesting in the book how if you talked about if you were going to build a team from scratch, like the order in which you would hire those people. Uh, So talk to us about that. So if you're building, you know, a, a data science, machine learning, AI project team from scratch, what would be the order in which you hire people? Well, I have product management skills, so I wouldn't hire another person like me. I probably, my first hire would probably be a designer or user researcher to really understand the problem space and, you know, what it is that the product that we're building should look and smell and feel like. And if there's a way we could achieve that problem without hiring a data science team, because guess what? They're expensive and hard. So I would see what kind of prototypes could we build that didn't require machine learning or used off the shelf machine learning to kind of prove out that there was business value there. Assuming that, you know, it is a problem that's well suited for machine learning and we really need to do that. You know, I would start with data engineering and making sure that the date because Andrew Karpathy puts up a great slide. Um, I'm sure it, it circulated a lot in the, the community, right? But in academia, you spend 80%, 90% of your time on model building and are like 10, 20% on data. In the real world, it's the opposite. You spend 80% of your time um, on data wrangling and about 10, 20% of time on model building. And so I would hire someone who's really good at data wrangling and understanding the data. After that, you know, I'm sort of making some assumptions, but typically companies already have software engineering. You know, if you're a startup company that uh, you have access to that. So assuming that a, a software engineering team is already in place, I think a data scientist might actually be one of my last hires because I think you you need a high-performing software engineering team in order to take that data science, to make that data science team successful and to put something into production, right? Um, and get it there. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. It, it, it When you're talking about, it might have been you or Wilson that wrote, wrote that chapter when they're talking about the order in which they would hire teammates. And the first hire would have been like that, the product project manager, product manager type of role, and then move into like those more technical roles. And I mean, I definitely like that approach. So, okay, so we've got, we, we figured out how to identify a problem, figured out how it is that we should structure our teams. Like, is there anything else that that we should make sure that we are doing in the early stages of a project to to ensure that it's successful, to to make sure that yeah. this thing has some... I always like to touch on incentives. You know, people do what you're measured on. Um, and so in a big organization or sometimes even a small organization, if people are, if, if you're giving someone a job, right, you're paying them money and, and typically they have job responsibilities and goals and expectations and and bonuses Um, and aligning people's bonuses and incentives all in an aligned way makes for a really high functioning team. So I'll give you an example where it doesn't work. That is actually pretty typical, which you will have a product management team bonused on revenue or member satisfaction, something like that. You will have an engineering team bonused on uptime or quality, um, you know, measured by lack of bugs, things like that. You'll have a machine learning team bonus on accuracy or precision. Um, because everyone is incented differently, you never ship anything, right? Because the engineering team is like, no, 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 we can't launch anything because we might accidentally introduce bugs or bring something down. The product team is super frustrated because they're like, no, we have to get stuff to market. We have to like launch something and they don't care if maybe it's buggy or whatever. Um, and the machine learning folks are, are like, no, 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 the model's not ready yet. I need more time. I need more time. I need more time. And everyone's sort of operating orthogonally 
not collaborating to get a high functioning MVP out to market. So I always like to make sure that when I'm building out a hiring plan, that a portion of people's you know, bonuses are based on their, their skill set and the technical acumen that they can bring, but also a portion is shared, right? And there are shared revenue goals or shared, you know, member um, satisfaction goals or whatever it is. Thank you very much for that, Alyssa. So how do we tell if we have the right data? Like what, what's, what's something that we should consider? You know, we, we know what our problem is. We've got the right team. Next thing I, you know, I'd say we probably have to move into getting some data to, to solve the problem. How do we make sure that it's the right data that we're using? Yeah. Um, so the data should be from the real thing that you're solving, right? So it, it needs to not be fake data or synthetic data sometimes could be a way to like jumpstart. You know, you can create data when you have a vacuum or, or no data for a problem, but the best data is, is real data that is generated either by humans. Sometimes that's emails or, you know, whatever that use case is that you're solving. So I'll take a frequent use case, which is often like a prioritization of support tickets, right? It's a classic model that uh, teams want to build inside a lot of different types of organizations. You have zillions of support cases coming in for, and you want to just categorize them, or you want to understand, you know, which ones are most severe that need to be answered first, or which ones have really, really pissed off customers in them that you, you, know, you want to get back to. And so you can't go and like turn around and look at another company's data for that or an off the shelf because you need your own data because your customers are going to be writing in in language that is specific to your products and services or their interactions with you or in uh you know perhaps the members that you serve uh, you know in California 40% of California speak Spanish as their primary language right so you know maybe your members are writing in in Spanglish um, or you know whatever it is and you need to make sure that the data that you are using to train is reflective of the actual problem and typically like it means annotated by humans um, sometimes you get lucky and you can get data that is already annotated with the outcomes or if you're in a customer support setting frequently there's you know a large customer service team that's already organized and categorized tickets and placed labels on them but you need to be really critical of whatever you're inheriting as the training data set and understand, well, who put those labels on and what context were they putting those labels on? And is that context the exact same context that I'm trying to replicate using a model? Because whatever model you build will replicate the context of the annotation or categories, right, that that data already exists in. And if that is adjacent to the business model that or, or the business problem, it's going to be the wrong context and it will not uh, always serve you. Um, so really, really asking hard questions around what is the provenance of the data that you're getting? You know, does it contain any gotchas from a security perspective or a reusability perspective? Sometimes you get a data set and you it's inappropriate to train on for a variety of reasons because it was you know, collected in one context and the legal terms in which you could use it are limited. Or it might be because of a business relationship and there's a partnership that's ending. And so, you know, as part of that partnership ending, you guys have to delete all the data and any inferences from it. And so you need to ask some business questions around, you know, what are going to be the gotchas? Can I really use the data? Is it complete? You know, is it missing any things? Has it been tra transformed from, you know, the original way in which it was annotated? And is the, in that transformation, 
is that going to be meaningful, right? So a classic example is like nulls, right? Or just no answer um, on a particular category of things. You know, does that mean the agent didn't know, you know, or, you know, it could mean different things that impact the outcome of your model. Yeah. One of the many things I loved about the book, Real World AI, again, you guys should get this book. It is really good. Was just the sheer number of use cases that you shared from industry and some of them from your experience and Wilson's experience as well. Um, I mean, just a lot of good stuff in this book. A couple of points to touch on there. One thing that I guess didn't really register for me as severely as it should have prior to reading the book was just the importance of annotating data. But talk to us a little bit uh, about that. Like you touched on it a little bit just recently, but I mean, like if we have data that needs annotation, like how do we check the quality of those annotations? How do we know where to go to get annotated? Do you have any tips around that? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought this was easy. <laughs> I've inherited data sets before and I'm like, oh, great. It's already annotated. Cool. And then I'm also like, or I've inherited data sets and it's not annotated. I'm like, oh, how hard can this be? Like, let's just hire Mechanical Turk or, you know, a bunch of interns and we'll like put labels on data. So that works for a thousand, you know, you know, kind of scale, right? You can get enough interns, maybe 10,000, you know, it depends how many hours. But if you are doing serious scale, right? And, you know, deep learning sort of neural net scale typically requires orders of magnitude more data than that. And so that requires infrastructure. It, it requires hundreds or thousands of annotators. Um, and it requires them all doing it in exactly the same way that you really can control um, and follow up on and have quality checks on. So, you know, there's there's quite a few data and companies that do data annotation. Obviously, I used to work for one of them at, at Appen. Appen really had, you know, a huge uh, workforce. They acquired Figure 8 where I was at, which was the sort of technology side, but also, you know, uh, was a platform um, that people can use. And sometimes those annotators are going to be more anonymous to you. Um, and other times it's really important that those annotators are experts in your business. So, and, and leveraging a platform. So if those annotators are, you know, need to be nurses or, or radiologists, or sometimes, you know, we've had use cases where it, it's data that is owned by a government, you know, or really sensitive. So you need special types of clearances to access the data, but you need to be able to organize it in exactly the same way and account for people's different perspectives, um, but also structure it. So, you know, the technology platforms can help, um, you know, scale, figure eight, there, there's a bunch of them in market. I happen to be biased and think figure eight is a really strong one and now happen. You know, things like um, test questions um, and gold standard data sets, things like making sure you have, uh, if you ask the same annotator or three different annotators the same question and two of them agree, right? And a third or two of them disagree, a third can be a tiebreaker, but sometimes they all disagree and maybe you need to sort of dynamically expand the number of annotators so that you can drive to agreement um, or you need to have multiple steps in an annotation and breaking down those steps into really, really narrow and discrete phases for scalability is key. So there's a lot of gotchas in annotating data, like a ton. Um, and the way what I recommend doing is like roll up your sleeves yourself before you like ask anyone else to annotate your data and do 10 do a hundred annotations of, you know, the data that you need and it will become clear really, really quickly to you, whether it's 
easy uh, to scale and really structured, or um, it uncovers more problems than you thought. Typically, it's the latter. Uh, thanks so much for that, Lisa. So well, let's talk about the deployment phase now. I guess, what are some things that we should be considering when it comes time to deploy our model into production? And then maybe if you could share a lesson that you learned with us, uh, you shared a lesson in the book that you learned about uh, deploying models into productions. If you could talk to us about that lesson learned. Yeah. Which one are you referencing? Sorry. This was the one that it was with, with IBM and it involved something breaking. I'll I'll dig it up. Uh, Yes. I remember. So launched a demo and accidentally brought down a data center. Uh, Not one of my finer moments. So deploying something to production there's a lot of different scales of doing that, right? When I was at IBM, that's a 400,000 person company. It's a hundred billion dollar company. There's you know huge checks and balances that go into launching production. At a startup, that's very different. But if someone is paying money for your product or it's going to be used in a public environment, even if that just sort of on a, on a demo website, it, it could have the opportunity to be good, right? And, and gain traction. So um, I think what you're referencing was the time um, that we launched our first computer vision demo. I had a really, really small team. I think it was like five people, essentially like an intern built a demo front-end website to this API um, on top of Watson Vision. Really nice intern. At IBM eventually hired the guys. Awesome. And uh, so we launched it. I QA'd it myself because I didn't have any QA resources and I'm, you know, B minus QA person. But, you know, we were trying to be scrappy and we launched something. And we weren't operating with a ton of revenue. Like this was a a beta sort of product, but we launched it. Um, And it was a cool little interactive demo. You get to put images in and train models. But what happened was it was like, I think a Wednesday, you know, I was doing my job. I was traveling on business that week and I had flown to Boston. And uh, on Saturday, my phone is blowing up. There are urgent messages from all these VPs and GMs way above me around like, who built this demo and like, why is it broken? I was like, what? I didn't even know you know my name. Like what's happening? Turns out that someone put the demo on Reddit and people liked the demo and started interacting with it. And it was getting a ton, a ton, a ton of traffic into this poor little web app. Um, And we hadn't built it in a way that scaled. Like it was like a, the, we didn't put enough, it wasn't sort of built to scale dynamically with that kind of a traffic. It, and all of a sudden it was like down and, you know, Reddit comments are like, oh, Watson's down, Watson's down. I was like, ooh, that's actually not what's happening. It's my little demo website that's down. The API behind the scenes like works totally fine and does scale, but that perception, you know, was was totally inappropriate. Um, and so, you know, we fixed we fixed the demo and, you know, we made to expose some underlying bugs uh, in, you know, some infrastructure underneath. And we'd accidentally sort of brought down some other bigger systems for about 20 minutes, but we got them all back up and running. So that for me was a lesson learned that, um, you know, even if I don't think something is super exciting, you know, I thought I was like, oh, this is an MVP data product. It's not going to like get much traction. People really were excited about it. And, you know, machine learning can really unlock excitement and, and engagement for things that weren't possible before. So be prepared for scale. Yeah. Like I said, one of the many things I love about this book is all these real world war stories. You guys check it out. I mean, it, it so many horror good. stories, <laughs> horror but, stories, but it, war stories. Like it's all just, it's really, but it's, all, it's all good learning. Right. It and is. one of the things I love about the, the data science community, the machine learning community is that, you know, everyone is, I find frequently really, really giving with knowledge um, yeah. and wants to share and wants to sort of pave away. And 
this is a small way I can put some lessons learned and, and help others not make the same mistakes I did. Um, yeah. It's a privilege. There's definitely a great book for, you know, early career, mid career, late career, even just anybody who is in the field like this, I think is a must read. And one thing that you touched on that I know for a fact, not a lot of early career or aspiring data scientists get exposed to maybe even mid-career data scientists is just the importance of having a data strategy for AI maturity. So talk to us about that. You guys have like, you guys some significant retail space in the book dedicated just towards having a good data strategy for AI maturity. So talk to us about the importance of that. Yeah. So this goes back to like, most companies just don't focus on like data as a core differentiated asset of a growth engine for the organization. And so, you know, one of the things I speak to is, you know, where, where are you acquiring data? What is the strategy for acquiring data? And then what is the strategy for extracting value from that data towards meeting your organization's goals? So, you know, in healthcare, for example, um, you know, where I'm at now, we have different strategies for, you know, we're an insurance company. So guess what? People submit claims to us. Lots and lots and lots of them. So that is a uh, it's a data acquisition strategy. Um, and, you know, we can turn that and leverage that claims data into really, really useful insights in an aggregate level. Um, and, you know, there's regulation around what we can and can't do with that data and how we share it and, and needing to adhere to that regulation, not because it's legal, but also like it's appropriate and ethical. And there, there's good reasons for being stewards, uh, you know, responsible with that data. But it could also really delight those same members that are serving, right? Health insurance claims, like, doesn't get anyone up in the morning, right? Like, oh, God's a pain to submit claims. And like, oh, why won't you pay more and whatever. But I could, if I could turn around and use that same data and say, hey, you know, other people like you, um, we recommend you go to this different doctor because they had really good outcomes with this knee surgery that you need, you know, that is likely to come up. And we think actually it's going to cost you less and have a better outcome. And so there's all these really interesting insights that we can start to do with that data and, and understanding sort of what data you have, how is it an asset, and then how are you using that asset to deliver value for your customers? And I know one of my good friends, George Farrakhan, is huge on data governance. He's got this channel, Lights on Data, all about data governance. And I, I didn't even know anything about data governance until I had to start implementing a data strategy at my current company, you know, being the first data scientist delivering some value with a machine learning model to put into production. Everybody wants a little bit of this machine learning action, but we have no data strategy in place. We've got no data governance, no data management, none of that it's stuff. so important because yes. you need to have legal on board. You need privacy. It's operationally really critical. Um, often it requires business development and those, you know, sort of different relationships there. Yes, it also requires like some data engineers and some databases and, you know, strategy around where you're storing and how you're moving and how frequently you're updating the data and all that. But like I said, I had the privilege of working with the awesome engineering and data teams. Um, and so they've done a really good job at making that easy. Have you had any challenges like trying to, to I guess, sell the data governance thing? When I, if anybody hears the word governance, they're just all, you know, fucking police, what are you doing, man? Don't, don't govern me. It's a free country. So like, how do you deal with those challenges in, in an organization if, if you face those? Yeah, I mean, there's always carrot and stick, right? So stick is, you know, are we going to get audited or do we need to be compliant with the legal mandate? And if we don't do this, here's the bad things that could happen. Here's the risk to the organization. Um, so that's one side of it. If, if you have some, if you're trying to importance or urgency about something, which is like, hey, 
let me like back on the envelope math here. Like we could get fined up to $500 per thing. And we have exposure right now of 500,000. So that's a, you know, X dollar value problem for us. On the other side, you know, what opportunities can you unlock for the business using this data Um, and data governance or, or data strategy is sort of a, a means to an end, right? It's it's one of the steps that you need to take to unlock this revenue opportunity. So typically follow the money or you know follow the growth or you know whatever it is. Thank you so much for that, Alyssa. So we're gonna start winding down the the episode here. We've got uh, just two more questions before we get into what I like to call the random round. We talked about this a little bit earlier. You you brought it up about just you know the being a woman in tech. I was wondering if you might be able to just share some advice or words of encouragement for the women in the audience who are looking to break into into AI, machine learning, into tech in general, and 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 you know, just share whatever advice or wisdom you have for them. Yeah, I mean, the the short version is like, please do keep going. The this industry needs you. We are very lopsided right now, and your experience. Anyone who has experience that is different from a dominant culture, right? the weight of that experience is uh, even bigger than any one voice, right? So um, know that your your value just by your, you know, being a woman or being a person of color or being, you know, someone from a background that is non-traditional or, you know, you didn't go to Stanford or you didn't go to Harvard or MIT or whatever, like that, uh, that experience is really, really needed. And this industry depends on having more diverse voices in the room because otherwise you end up with situations, you know, there's a very sort of active conversation going on in, in government and politics right now around kind of big tech, right? And, you know, uh, the the influence that they wield and, you know, the small number of people who are wielding like really big influence um, and those small number of people are are not, you know, diverse groups that are serving, you know, sort of the macro populations. And so, the industry success depends on diversifying so that we can better serve the constituents. Um, so, you know, I think it's important for democracy, it's important for our countries, like national security and, you know, the, the macro stuff, but, you know, on a more micro, like individual, you know, don't, don't doubt yourself um, and don't doubt the value that you can bring. And it's okay not to know everything. I got hired in Watson. I had product management experience. I had business experience. I didn't have a clue about AI. I literally enrolled myself in Coursera, you know, Andrew Ng Machine Learning 101. But I was able to get up to speed fast um, because I had some some great partners, you know, who helped me get up to speed. And I was willing to learn. And I spent late nights and, you know, my husband's an engineer and he coached me through it. So surround yourself with a network and a team of people who can be your champions and support system. Yeah, I absolutely love that. All the points made, the last point resonated with me a lot because I, I studied math and statistics in school and grad school, and I wasn't actuary for a while. Um, I'm sure you deal with plenty of those at, at Blue, uh, Blue Shield. I didn't have any tech experience whatsoever. I had to learn that stuff all on my own. Like, even though, yeah, I could do algorithms by hand if I really had to. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the technology aspect of it. And a lot of that was just taking time outside of work to upskill and learn about that. So thank you so much for, for sharing your journey and perspective on, on that. I mean, data science, the whole field, it, it's really diversifying in terms of the types of roles that you're starting to see pop up. So for people who are coming from product management, project management type of role, what are some adjacent roles on data teams that they could be, you know, kind of shimmy into, if that question makes sense? Yeah, I, I mean, 
building a diverse cross-functional team like needs excellent project management skills. Like you need to get humans to work together successfully and talk about what their blockers are in a language that the other human can understand. So that's like straight project management. And so you don't necessarily need a different set of skills. It's applying it in a different domain, right? So, but you know, if I'm hiring a project manager into a team that is, you know, heavily dependent on data science or you know machine learning products. Ideally, I want them to have experience doing this before. And if they don't, I want to make sure that they can get up to speed and they are not afraid of those technologies and they're eager to learn. So what I actually look for most is, is attitude uh, and aptitude to learn, less so than the hard skill necessarily. And so, you know, I'm hiring someone on my team right now um, and uh, I have a lot of open roles actually. So apply, come work with me at Blue Shield. Um, but they... Uh, you know, not a, a lot of people who are applying don't necessarily have the exact skills I'm looking for, but, you know, we're looking for aptitude um, and we're looking for willingness and the excitement around solving these problems. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for, for saying that because that resonates so much with me because I share the same type of viewpoint and uh, you guys heard it. Hit Alyssa up, get a job uh, with her, tell her her preach sent you. Alyssa, your inbox going to blow up. So, <laughs> so I need product managers. Let's do it. If you understand data. Looking for you. So let's do the last question before we jump into the quick random round. It is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? 100 years in the future. What are, I, don't, I don't know. I doubt I'll be remembered. But uh, I think, you know, I'm a big believer that uh, small teams can solve big problems. Um, and so if I can help move the ball forward and, and create teams and, and help be a part of that, I don't think I don't think anyone remember me specifically as much as the outcomes that a team I was a part of helped achieve. I, I love that. Very beautiful. But thank you so much, Alyssa. Let's jump into the random round. First question for you here is when do you think the first video to hit one trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will that video be about? What is it now? What is the top number uh, of views? It's like nine ish billion and it's baby shark. Baby shark. Well, my kid listens to a lot of baby shark. A billion so, right there. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, depending on the the preschool uh, scene, um, I have no idea. Um, I uh, I think um, the pet what the pandemic has shown is how fast traffic and attention can shift. So you know, what keeps me up at night is global warming and uh, that, that that kind of stuff. So um, uh, I I worry. Uh, about that. I'm also really excited about the promise of technology and the promise of collaboration to tackle some of these big challenges. Everybody listening and watching, do your part. Let's make this the first video to hit a trillion views. You can do it. So in your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? I'm tall. Ooh. People think I'm tall. I got bright red hair. I kind of stand out in most crowds, particularly in Asia. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm easy to spot in the first few seconds. What are you currently reading? What am I currently reading? Uh, so I, I tend to read books intermittently, actually, only on vacation. I'm going on vacation next week. So there's a there's a pile on next to my uh, next to my bed of, of different books. I recently read a book. Now I'm blanking on the uh, the name of the author, but it's the woman who's a mother of a. Uh, Oh my God, what is the name of the book? I'm so sorry. I, oh, it's, it's I, good. We can skip to the next Remember one. the name of the book. Yeah. Come back to me. But it's it'll, about it'll, how to be a good parent and raise strong kids. So yeah. okay. I got a two-year-old. 
I got a one-year-old, so please send me that book because I need to figure out how to do that. Uh, so what song do you have on repeat? I have, look up the name of the song, on repeat, it is uh, Showman. Showman, huh? But who's that yeah. by? I have to look that one up. I'm so sorry. I'm like the worst. All I do is work and parents, so <laughs> I don't have to listen to music besides like Baby Shark. No worries. Hey, let's go ahead and jump to a real quick random question generator. One of my favorite things to do on the show. So this is a, a completely randomized question generator. Should be some fun stuff in here. First question is, what's your worst habit? My worst habit is talking before thinking and not taking a step back. Pizza or tacos? Tacos. Yes, I'm a Californian as well. And uh, it's interesting because like I'm a Californian from Sacramento. We owned a pizza restaurant for 25 years. I just combine the two. I like taco pizza. It's the best thing. What's your favorite candy? I'm into Australian licorice. Oh, interesting. I'll have to try to find some of that around here. You can get it at Trader Joe's. Mountains or ocean? This is a good one for uh, for a Californian. Was that ocean? Definitely, that definitely ocean every day. Ocean, awesome. And this is the last one here, and it is: What's the last book you gave up on and stopped reading? Uh, thinking fast and slow. I struggled <laughs> to get through that book. It's uh, a beast, man. It's it's a yeah. unit of a book. It's quite quite. I, I, it's about like sixty percent read. Yeah, also, like, I think halfway through Obama's latest book and uh, uh, four or five others. Nice. So Alyssa, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? Yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn, AlyssaSimpsonRockWorker.com. I'm easy to find. Alyssa, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. Everybody tuning in, you got to pick up a copy of this book. It is really good. It's going to really help solidify all those concepts and uh, things that you're learning about in boot camps and stuff like that and give you some context. Highly recommend checking it out, guys. And until then, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Bye. Thank you for having me.